Well, thank you, Doc, for that introduction. That's, most of that's true. You can, I'm not going to tell you what part isn't because I liked it all. Only some of it's true, but I liked it all. But it was, uh, it's good to be here, good to be with friends like Doc and Melissa. And, of course, David was here a while ago. And some others I've known, Becky and Karen, been colleagues at CBF. And Jim wrote me a nice note, told me he's talking about global mission at Heritage Baptist Church in Canton. So otherwise he would be here. And then... George, I didn't know George was going to be here until I walked in the door and we, uh, we saw each other. We hadn't seen each other. I was preaching at Brookhaven. What was that? Some church you saw my name on a sign here in Atlanta. Briarcliff. I was preaching one Sunday at Briarcliff, and they had my name on the marquee. I was just doing a guest pastor there, and George just shows up in the pew. And so I saw your name out there. I figured that was a Harry Rowland I knew from Nashville and showed up, and we had a chance to. <clears throat> well, you're probably still not sure, but it is me to do that. But uh, it is good. I'll tell you a little bit about George's in my relationship because I'm going to talk about Nashville a little bit. But and he can he can tell you if it's what's true and what's not. But we were on this road on Estes Road. We grew up at that time. Uh, George's um, mom was living there, and I think you spent part of the summer, part of the year there, part of the year not. But his dad was an All-American football player at Georgia Tech, and um, and he would come home, and we're just like little and our kids. I mean, we're just like in third, fourth grade something like that, George, and we thought we were really good football players, and, you know, our, our passes would go like this, you know, and for all 10 yards of this high arc, and uh, Mr. Valk would come out and want to play catch with us, you know, so we're throwing the ball, we feel we're good, then he threw this ball back, and it's like, you know, <laughs> uh, I'd never seen a ball thrown that hard in my life and scared us to death, but we had a good time growing up, a lot of fun times during the summer uh, playing together, it's always good to, good to connect and see George, and has been a good friend of my family, knows all my siblings, so it's Good to reconnect in that. Well, tonight we're going to kind of, or at least for the next three weeks, kind of looking at a study of what I've just kind of called uh, Beyond the Wander, really looking at this thing called theology. Um, kind of a big word out there, Greek word, the knowledge of God, so to speak, but uh, that doesn't really speak to really what it truly is. It's really um, how we look at life. It's how we put together some might call it a philosophy, as followers of Jesus, we would call it a theology. How we put together the way with which we live our life and respond to life, the situations, the problems of that. And uh, we have to do that ourselves. We have to somehow relate and understand a God in such a fashion that we can noodle around and put together our own theology of how we're going to live our life and how we're going to respond to the world around us. And that's, that's a challenge that all of us have. I didn't realize that for a long time. It was in, I'll take you back, in September 1976, I was sitting my first ever Bible study class, or Bible class. I was a freshman at Baylor University. Um, it was a New Testament survey class uh, for entering students. They had this thing that all kind of entering students at Baylor had to take. It was taught by a fellow named Dr. Jack Flanders. He'd been a former pilot in World War II, pastor of First Baptist Waco, a very, very smart individual. In fact, I was so impressed that, boy, I'm not freshman year, I saw that we even, he's even teaching us from a book he wrote. You know, that was pretty impressive as a freshman. Now, when I was a more mature sophomore, I just felt like that was a good way to get book sales. But anyhow, um, you know, but anyhow, we are, we are uh, being taught from a book that Dr. Flanders wrote. And, uh, and I was a little bit scared, but a little bit excited about this class because my background was that I, I didn't grow up in church. 
I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. My father had been a Navy pilot for a while, then he retired from that, and not retired, but got out and became a real estate developer. We were living in Nashville. My mother was an artist. Um, we were, I was the oldest of four children. You would think living in, quote, the buckle of the Bible belt in Nashville that everybody was a follower of Christ, but you know, we didn't have anything against God. We just didn't give God the time of day. Life got busy. Folks, that wasn't their background. Um, nobody was mad at anything. You just get, you know, my dad was a very successful businessman. My mother, as I said, was an artist. And we just doing our own thing and didn't give God the time of day and didn't really know about God. And uh, then, you know, sometimes ladies have a little bit more spiritual bent than us fellows do. And my sisters, I'm the oldest of four. There's only one year difference between us all. So we're all pretty, as George know, we're all pretty stair-stepped uh, down there. And uh, my sisters got invited to go to a youth group. And it happened to be a Baptist church. We were not denominationally tied. Go to a youth group. And uh, I don't know the conversation that took place with my parents, but I felt like at that time they felt like they needed all the help with four teenagers they could get, and they thought it might be a good idea to try to get some help. But all of a sudden they decided it might be a good idea for some of us to go to, to start taking us to church. <clears throat> well, I, I went to, at that time went to a private all-boys high school called College Prep High School called Montgomery Bell Academy right there next to Vanderbilt, and had gone there from seventh grade on as my junior year, finishing my junior year when we first stepped in church, was finishing my junior year of high school. And I learned that they had these things called Sunday school classes at church that actually had, like, girls in it. And you go to a private all-boys school from seventh through twelfth grade. So God can use impure motives sometimes to get you situated in there, too. And I thought, well, it might be good to go. I mean, you get to have, there's girls in these Sunday school classes. You can meet other girls, my sisters told me, so... It didn't sound so, so bad, but I remember walking to that Sunday school class that first Sunday I was there, sitting in there, and a fellow named Dr. Larry Swift, who's head of pathology at Vanderbilt University, was teaching, Vanderbilt Hospital was teaching that, uh, that junior class. And we sat there a while, and everybody got to introduce themselves, and then he said, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And I remember sitting there thinking... What in the world is a first Corinthian? Now, I'd taken architecture. I was a, I mean, we had a pretty heady high school. I could, I could recognize and draw a Doric column, Ionic column, a Corinthian column, but I didn't think that was what he was speaking of. But I kind of, he probably looked at the puzzled look at my face, and he was sensitive enough that he reached on that shelf, you know, that shelf that's in all those youth rooms that have those dusty Bibles on them that nobody ever used. He picked up a stack of those dusty Bibles, and probably for the first time in years, he opened one up to 1 Corinthians, handed it to one kid, opened up to 1 Corinthians, handed it to another, and did that to the whole class, I think, just trying to make me feel at home, as he handed one to me that was open also to 1 Corinthians, and then taught the lesson. I just thought that was the way it was always done. I'm sure those other uh, kids in the class that, uh, you know, thought, what in the world is Dr. Swift doing? And that became, that was kind of my introduction to, to, uh, to church. Um, and so my senior year certainly was involved in church. And then I had a chance to go to Baylor uh, and went there. And uh, lo and behold, I find myself in Dr. Flanders' New Testament class. And it seemed like everybody else in that class at Baylor being at that time, maybe it still is the largest Baptist institution out there. Everybody was either half the class was pastor's kids and the other half had grown up in church. And there's like two or three of us that, you know, maybe had a few months of something under our belt called Sunday school. But that was about, was about it. So as Dr. Flanders began to teach this class, uh, and I, have it, I went back and looked at my notes today because I still have that, that book that I wrote, his, his uh, New Testament book that I wrote this in. He said, this is the purpose of the class. He said, now, ladies and gentlemen, by the end of our time together, 
You will have begun the lifetime journey of discovering your, and he emphasized your, your theology for life. You can't live life off someone else's theology. You can't live life off your mom and dad's theology. You can't live life off your pastor's theology. You have to do the work of discovering a theology that's yours. No other theology would do you any good. And he went on to say that theology is the answer we put together from the Bible and our, and our personal experience with God to help explain life situations and life problems. And he said, now those who are not followers of Christ, they have to put together their own theology. They may call it their own philosophy of life to help deal with their problems and their situations. And they have to find answers too. So they may borrow from Christians, or they may borrow from friends, they may borrow from their parents, they may borrow from people who they read about in books, they may borrow the philosophy of whoever they listen to on the radio or watch on the TV, and they try to put together all this to create some type of philosophy of life. We all have to figure out some way with which we're going to address the life situations. And he said, this course is going to offer you the opportunity to begin discovering a theology of life for the questions that you're going to face in the future. And I thought, what in the world am I in for? That's pretty intimidating for your first college class to figure out, oh, you're going to get now my responsibility is to put together this theology of life that's going to help answer all the questions and situations that I'm going to deal, deal with in life. And so it was a bit of an intimidating fashion. So as the semester wore on, I was learning a lot, learning a lot of knowledge about the Bible, about people in the Bible. You know, I mean, I had that one-year Sunday school class under my belt, so I was really felt like I was well prepared in there to, to do that. Um, but I was, I was struggling along and trying to figure that out. I was learning all this stuff. I was I, I meeting people in the Bible. I, I knew Jesus and the disciples. They were a little bit familiar to me after my year of Sunday school uh, in there. Then, you know, I kind of got introduced to some other people, these people called Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and Levites. And these are supposed to be religious people too and they had a philosophy or theology of life about how God was to work in their world and God was to work in their life but it seemed like here they were very religious and very thoughtful and they spent a lot of time trying to figure out uh, how, how God works and what God desires of them but then somehow Jesus and his disciples and that theology and the scribes and the Pharisees they just didn't seem to, to meet and they seemed to be at odds and, you know, for, for a fellow with just one year of Sunday school under his belt, that was a little bit confusing. You know, why didn't everybody get along? All these people talk about, you know, liking God and following God. And um, why didn't they just get along? But then I kind of realized that the Pharisees and those religious leaders, and it's not limited to them, <clears throat> they had somehow used or interpreted their scriptures and traditions to put together a way to explain God. So they wanted to explain God, and they'd use that to figure out a way to explain God. Basically, they had kind of done it in such a fashion, they had God in a box. This is the way God's supposed to act. This is the way God does act. This is what God does. This is how God does it. Of course, later on, I learned you can read Job was against that. You had different Bibles, uh, books of the Bible that kind of spoke against putting God in a box, so to speak. But that seemed to be the tradition that was there. But what they missed in their relationship or their interaction with this incarnate God, Jesus, who was now in their midst, was this experiential God. 
How do I live in relationship with a God who is alive and who is active in my world? Who, is, who knows us intimately and desires to, to share life alongside of us? And they were missing that type of, of God. And so when Jesus worked in ways that were outside their theological box, eating with sinners, healing on the Sabbath, doing things like that, they're outside their theological box for God of how God works. They called it heresy, told him he was a sinner. And so they missed God in their midst. You know, we... <clears throat> Theology, finding, putting together a theology of life of which we live by is significant work. I mean, you know, it was kind of heady for a, for a uh, college freshman. But it's not just limited. It, it's certainly not limited to a college course. It's certainly something that you don't, can't do in four years. It's a lifetime of allowing God to work. And it's not just about a knowledge, a head knowledge. The part, really, I hope that we look at over the next several weeks is how do we experience this God that's in our midst today? We have to have a head knowledge, but there also has to be ways that we slow our lives down to experience God and meet God in a way that we can allow God to be God and make sure we aren't trying to limit the way that God is seeking to work in our lives or in our church. So let me ask you a couple of questions. These aren't hard, I don't think. <clears throat> how many of y'all believe that God has hopes and dreams for you? Some of y'all still thinking about that? Okay, good. How many of you believe that God has hopes and dreams for this church? How many of you believe that God has hopes and dreams for this community that, that, that we're called to be the presence of Christ in? Now, how many of us believe that we have a God who desires to reveal God's hopes and dreams to us? Good. So, let me get this straight. We all believe that God has hopes and dreams for our lives and for Second parts and for this community. And we believe that we have a God who desires to reveal God's hopes and dreams to us. So where's the breakdown? The breakdown is sometimes we don't slow down enough or create space enough in our own life to experience that God, that God can actually, quote, speak to us. Maybe it's through scripture. Maybe it's through worship. Maybe it's through, in some fashion, the spirit of God can lead us. That we can experience God. That God can share those hopes and dreams with us. And I've learned that, that when we create our own theology of life, yes, it comes from knowledge. We need to read God's word. We need to know the scripture. But it also comes from us slowing down enough that we actually experience God and meet God in our lives. That God can do what God desires to do in our lives because we have that type of relational God. And we sometimes we can get so busy, so busy, even doing good stuff, that we miss that. And I wasn't a, <clears throat> I was a, I'm pretty much a city boy. I was kind of raised in the city, lived in the city. You know, um, I didn't have a whole lot of rural experiences. That part of my life was a little bit neglected. I mean, when I went to pastor up in northern Kentucky, for a time right up outside of Cincinnati, but it was still on the Kentucky side. Um, I had a lady, well, the first thing they did was they were going to have the uh, uh, pounding for the Rollins. 
And I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, I didn't have any pastors in my, no, no minister in my, ever been a minister in my family. And I've been in civil fraternities, so I kind of thought this pounding was like, is this like club hazing? They put you, run you through the gauntlet or something? It's like hazing for the new pastor. I didn't know what pounding was. I did learn a pound of this, a pound of that. They kind of give you as welcoming, but I didn't know that. Then a lady called from the church and said, oh, did you find the canned goods I put on the back of the parsonage? And I said, no, I didn't, but there's a bunch of jars with vegetables in them. I didn't know. I mean, why do they call it canning? I call it jarring. I didn't know. I mean, why do you call it canning and put it in jars? I didn't know. I said, no, there's a bunch of jars and that. So my, you know, my, my rural part was a, a little bit missing <coughs> in there. Um, but I had done a little bit of Boy Scouting and camping and enjoyed that. And, but I learned something about building, building a fire. Um, you know, if you can, have, you can have really nice, dry firewood, and you can have really fine kindling and a good starter. But, you know, if you, put, if you just get that kindling and then you just pile all the wood on that and you try to start it, is it going to light? No. No. Why not? That's that air, doesn't it? Yeah, you can put a lot of good stuff. You can have the best wood in the world. You can have the finest kindling. You can have a great starter that lights on the first, you know, that first try. But if you don't have, if you don't spread it out, if you don't create space in that wood, the air can't flow through. And the spark can't light. And the fire can't burn. I think one of the parts that we can miss so often in creating, discovering our theology of life is we don't create space enough in our life where the Spirit of God can really flow through to light that good kindling that you have from all those teachers and that you're reading and and uh, your sermons and all that have developed in your life to catch it on fire. And we miss what can miss what God is doing, even putting good wood on that. So what I hope we kind of work the next, begin today and the next two Wednesdays that I have the opportunity to, if you choose to come back, that opportunity to be with you, is uh, <clears throat> to, to talk about how we create this theology of life, both using God's word, but also creating space in our life that we don't have God in a box. Don't just expect God to work in a certain way. But that we allow God to be God. And do what God desires to do. Which may look different. From what maybe we've thought or seen at different times. So I share all that to finally get to our scripture text today. Which is John chapter 2. You're welcome to open your Bibles to that. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. It's a, probably a familiar passage. To you, to you, even if you're like me, only had one, you know, one year of Sunday school class, you may have hit this one because it's one of these miracles. It's the miracle of, of the turning water into wine in Cana, you know, to do that. And so it's, a, it's a, really the first miracle ex- experience that we have in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and it's a familiar one. Now, as I read this, I want you to kind of talk about experiencing uh, God. So I want to give us a little bit of practice with that. As I read this passage... I want you to kind of settle down a bit and listen to it. You're welcome to follow along, of course. But I want you to kind of listen to that and listen to it in such a fashion that you maybe let the Spirit of God God draw out a word, a phrase, a thought, something that maybe you're just even curious about. That You know, I hadn't thought about that word. That phrase is kind of funny or I hadn't really paid attention to that when I read it before. But let the Spirit of God maybe draw out a word, a phrase, a curious idea 
from this passage of Scripture. And then I am going to add, I'm going to give you a little bit of warning. I'm going to ask some people just to, to share a little bit. You know, what word caught your attention? You know, it's not, this isn't a hard question, but what word caught your attention? Or what phrase caught your attention? Or what was a curious part of the passage that caught your attention? So be thinking about that as I read this passage, and we'll, we'll see what God brings up, all right? On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern of that is to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, Just do whatever he tells you. Now standing beside them were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out, and, they, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Was there a word, a phrase, a point of curiosity that jumped out at you? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Yeah, Jesus always seems to know when his time is. A little bit later in there, when speaking, he says, my time now has come. Yeah, he knew that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> word, phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the very beginning of the passage when you're describing, describing the event. Yeah. So what, I'm just curious about what day of the week. Is that kind of what the curiosity part is? Yeah. Is that a day of the week or mm-hmm. has something happened before? Yeah. A lot of times maybe put the Sabbath on Friday, so it could have been that Sunday and Monday in there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes translating from an original language to English, it seems more harsh than what it truly, truly is. A uh, woman's a title of respect is what it is in th- that language. So it's really the way we would use it is a bit differently. So just translate, but that's an excellent point. It's almost saying like, you know, mom, um, what is just serving wine, what does that have to do with us or something like that? It wasn't necessarily as harsh. It appears very harsh in our translations and, you know, and... You know, I had to have at least three, three years of Sunday school before I finally got over that. But anyhow, you know, it, it, does, sound, it does sound pretty, pretty harsh. But that's a good point. But uh, yeah, because, and there are several places in Scripture where Jesus comes across like that, isn't it? You know, the woman says, why should I scrape off 
crumbs to give to a dog when he's speaking. Yeah, so there's places in Scripture where Jesus, as he's seeking to reveal who he is, can, can, can come off harsh. Others? Uh-huh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't you almost imagine Jesus of, of kind of allowing, letting his mom know that he's going to be obedient? It's almost, you can almost see his body language says, Mom, what, us providing wine here, what's that have to do with us? But he's kind of saying, I'm going to help. And then he says, then she just turns to the servants, just do whatever, whatever he says. As she sought one that she gone to her eldest Joseph's not mentioned here most people think Joseph has passed away by this time so certainly Jesus is the eldest to, to, to help him there this is weird but it struck me that he went to the wedding without his mother she was there already mm-hmm. and left with her also strange to me that a whole group of guys his age left and went to another city and his mother came <laughs> <laughs> it, is. it is. You know, some of the things we, the commentators write about this passage of Scripture are things that we can know. It, most likely, most people feel like it was some family event. It's, you know, it's probably extended family. Cana is just a very short distance from Nazareth where Mary was probably still living. It's probably a family event. She had some sense of re- op- uh, responsibility, obligation to put this wedding on. So there was a sense that she was maybe when the party hostess in some fashion to do that. Uh, at this point, Jesus has just recruited four disciples. You have John who's recording this, Simon, Andrew, and Nathaniel, or the only four that he's recruited at this point. So Jesus and his foursome uh, come up there to, uh, to, to this, to this uh, wedding feast uh, to participate in that. And, and, so, uh, and, and then during that time as they're enjoying it, they do run out of wine, um, you know, there's a problem that's there. We spoke about how what Jesus says sounds a bit harsh, but he's basically, you know, basically saying, um, you know, uh, what's this have to, you know, the wine, that's not all what I'm about, but he's going to help. And then certainly Jesus turns and has six large jars holding 20 to 30 gallons, and he t- does the, takes what's right, at, right around us. Jesus had the ability to use just the ordinary. Ordinary people, ordinary things, just the ordinary around us. He has the ability to take the ordinary and do the extraordinary. And so he takes six water jugs, just used for purification, and does the extraordinary of turning that water into wine, and the wine of the highest quality. And then, as was said here, that he says in verse 11, God's glory is revealed, and belief follows. It was the belief of those four disciples. His glory was revealed in the fact that led to, as they experienced God and saw Jesus kind of break out of the box in some ways, um, God revealed his glory in Jesus, and belief occurred in the lives of those four, first four disciples. So what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? I mean... We learned some, this is like the first kind of miracle that we kind of see, <clears throat> see about Jesus. He's obedient. He's obedient yeah, to his mother, was to God, mm-hmm. and to God too. Did whatever he does, he did for the glory, so certainly obedient. Mm-hmm. 
What's the part? They had a purification judge outside, probably George, outside there when they entered in. They would clean themselves as far as hands and feet, primarily. Yeah, cleansing. Mm -hmm. To do that. Yeah. I think that one thing that John wants us to see, and that as we try to put together a theology of life that's going to help us to deal with our life situations, is that. We see here in this very first miracle that John records for us that Jesus is very human. He's very caring. He's a, very, he's a relating Messiah or Christ. I want, put you, I want you to put yourself in this story for a moment. And I want you to put yourself in this story for a moment that maybe you feel some of the emotions that maybe Jesus felt in this. So you've been invited to a family wedding. You and some of your followers who are there. Your mom's the person that you love more on earth than anybody else. Is one of the hostesses. Jesus cared for his mom. Remember the cross? He loved his mom. The person that you cared for most is one of the hostesses. All of a sudden, the party starts falling apart a bit. Some of the preparations must not have been adequate. And she comes a little bit frantic to him. And says, we got a problem. It's going to be embarrassing. I need help. What do you sense? What do you sense Jesus felt? Or what do you sense that Jesus experienced? Or what does this tell us about Jesus? I mean, that's a better. What, what does this tell us about Jesus, how he responds to this situation? Felt compassion, didn't he? Mm-hmm. For his mom. He also wasn't his timetable, I don't think. Mm-hmm. No. Maybe it wasn't his, you know, Right. Yeah, he does say it's not my time. In other words, to really do what I needed, this isn't the time, but it didn't stop him from doing that. And he built, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, in the grandest scheme of things that Jesus was dealing with, how important was this? At that time, it was probably very important to Mary and to other family members that were there. And you know, if it was important to her, it was important to Jesus. You know, sometimes we can think that we have situations and problems and wonder if we have a God who really cares or if, if, you know, God's got bigger things to do than do with my little problem or my little situation. This miracle can remind us that God cares about us and about these situations in our life. And Jesus always takes into account our feelings. How many times do we see Jesus responding with miracles to com- because of compassion or those who are hurting? Jesus always takes into account our feelings. Because we, we have a Messiah who, who's willing to get into the messiness of our lives. Just really get into those messiness of our lives. And, you know, sometimes I don't want to be in the messiness of my life. Um, But we have a Messiah that's willing to say, if you will create space for me and not keep me in some box about how you expect me to act or behave, I'm willing to get into the messiness of your life to help you deal with those questions or handle those situations. He's at a wedding that was not beneath him, that wasn't just, he didn't treat it as frivolous. 
He was there in the midst of people that he cared about, in the midst of the messiness of life. And we, where we are in our life, Jesus desires for us to invite him into, that, into those places of our life. Those good times and those challenging times, he desires for us to invite him into those places in life. Now let's talk about this miracle. I mean, uh, turn water into wine. You know, we, we, Denise and I just were out in Arizona this last week. We were working on the, um, doing a mission endeavor with uh, Native American lands with the Navajo people, some of our, uh, Greg and Sheila Long, who were some of our CBF pastors, both Navajo, working on that area. So we were, it was, I mean, when you get into the Indian reservations and drive there, I mean, we had to, the hotel was like an hour and something away. You drive an hour and something into the desert that's there. You stand there. There's nothing there. You put on this event. You know, um, I think if I'd had 150 gallons of wine, I would ask him to turn it in the water right there. That was a, mir- was a miracle that, I need, that we needed at that, at that point, at that time, you know, um, reverse. But think about this miracle. Stretch your imagination. I don't know how many people were at this wedding, but I got a... I think it's a stretch of imagination that 150 gallons of wine was really needed for this, uh, for this, for this wedding feast. Uh, it seems like when Jesus does something, he just doesn't do it the way we think that Jesus should do it. He does it with a sense of abundance and an exuberance. And so often in our own life, we, can, we can, don't even realize we have God in this theological box because in our prayer, we kind of expect God to work. Well, I need your help with this problem. I need my help with my daughter to get a job, you know, or, to, or to this moving or transition. And those are prayers we need to pray. And sometimes we think this is the only way that God can work and praise God to give that job or bring this healing or work this situation out. And we almost feel like God answers a prayer if he does it the way we think that would be the best answer. And if we're not careful, we'll have blinders on and won't see that when God does that, answers that prayer, that if we're careful, we're going to find out that it's done with more exuberance than we ever thought. All of a sudden, it may not be just a job. All of a sudden, there's a special friend that's there or there's an opportunity. And all of a sudden, there's a sense of abundance or exuberance that Jesus is willing not just to stay in that box and answer that prayer. But when Jesus does work with us, it's a sense of abundance. A little later in John, John 10.10 what does Jesus say? I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. It's kind of what he did right here. I didn't just come to stay in a box and answer this or do it this little bit. Oh, here's a few bottles of wine to get you through the night, Mom. Here's 150 gallons of something nobody's ever tasted before that the steward's going to be talking about forever. It solved the problem, but it was life and life abundant. That's the Jesus that, as we experience it, as we try to put together this theology of life, that is not just head knowledge of what God works or why we pray or what we know. We have to create space in our life that we can experience God, that we can experience this abundant life. And it's as we put both the head and the heart together. I mean, it's only 12 inches between head and heart, but man, it's, sometimes it's like a thousand miles to get these two things to connect. But that's when we really have a theology that can help us deal with life. When we know this God and then we're daily experiencing a God who's willing to do something in greater abundance.
Is this easy? I mean, to continually look to find a theology of life, a God in our midst, to create space in our life where we can experience God so that God can do what God desires to do. I found it not so easy. I wish I could have, at the end of my Dr. Flanders course, my freshman year at Baylor, I could have said, here's my theology of life and gotten an A on that, and I'm set for life. He was right that it was the beginning of a journey. And there have been times I thought I had a theology of life that was going to see me through the rest of my life. And lo and behold, I realized that it was probably it was a too confining box for God. And all of a sudden, something else came up, and I had to experience God in a new way, or God was able to work in a different, different fashion. But it's worth it. Also in Nashville, I don't know if George remembers this part, but there used to be a... Um, a tournament in Nashville called the March of Dimes tournament. It was a basketball tournament that all the high schools in Nashville, we had a number of high schools, would play together. It was around the Christmas season, <clears throat> raised money for cancer research. And uh, it was just kind of all uh, scrimmages that, were, that didn't count towards anybody's regular schedules. But all the high schools would scrimmage together, play together. But also all the colleges in Nashville would do the same. So you had Vanderbilt and Belmont and Trevecca and Tennessee State University and Aquinas and David Lipscomb and all these colleges in Nashville would also scrimmage and play together. Well, the culmination of this uh, holiday March of Nimes tournament was that the winner of the high school division, I don't know who thought this up, and the winner of the college division would scrimmage each other for like six-minute periods in there. You know, it probably sounded good on paper. It didn't sound so good when you're looking up like this, you know. Um, but uh, so one year, my sophomore year, we actually won the high school division. So we were going to play a school called Tennessee State University who won the college division that year. They beat Vanderbilt, Belmont, David Lipscomb. On that team, some of these names may be familiar to you. On that team, there's a guy named Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam, who all went on to be a quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers at one time. An NBA basketball player named Leonard Truck Robinson, who played 12 years in the NBA for the Phoenix Suns. And then there's this guy named Ed Tutal Jones, who was the number one draft pick of the Dallas Cowboys um, and uh, went on to NFL Hall of Fame. And if you don't know him, it's kind of like a Shaquille O'Neal type individual in there. But big old guy. And these, you know, that, sometimes you have this group of athletes that just come through and they just, they're good at every sport. And they were there. So needs to say, we're, we're playing this team. I'm, I'm a sophomore at this time. On, first game I started all year, only game I started all year. I just thought I earned the right. It was about 20, 20 years later, I'm telling this story and I have this epiphany. The only reason I was in that game was I was expendable. If I, if I got hurt, it wasn't going to mess up the rest of the season. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I remember telling this story, and I can still remember myself pausing and having that realization. I really thought I'd been so good, but then I realized that was just because I didn't start any other game that year to do that. So. But anyhow, I did start that game. And so we're playing, you know, I think we maybe got one rebound that night, you know, as the ball went up there. Oh, they're fast breaking on us, and, you know, we're trying, trying so hard. And so we're coming down the court, and I'm standing there, get ready, get ready to pick up a charge, you know, and, and we're coming, and Joe Gilliam is on the left. Ed Tutal Jones is filling the middle aisle. You know, he's running down the floor. They pass the ball to him. I kind of wave to make sure he sees me, you know, <laughs> in there, you know. I'm, I'm all 6'5". Six, I'm 6'5". Six I'm 6'5". I only weighed 160 pounds at that time. You know, he's 6'5", 160 pounds. He's... He's a, he, I think he was 6'10", 280, 90, something like that. And there he comes. I wave. He smiles. I stand there to pick up the charge. He just runs right over me, you know, runs over me, stuffs the ball in. I just slide all the way back, just tap my head back on the back wall underneath the goal. You know, he walks over to me. Ref calls foul. He walks over to me. He 
reaches out his hand. He takes his hand. It took up to my whole arm, I think, his hand. And he pulls me up and he says, but was it worth it? But was it worth it? Just getting, I got two free throws. I think they're probably the only two points I scored all night. But was it worth it just to get run over? I get to tell the story now, so that part, I guess, is worth it. But was it worth it? Trying to experience Jesus in the messiness of our lives, it's not easy. Creating space and slowing down enough that we can experience God, invite God in, not get God in a box that we feel like this is, we already know how God's going to work, but allow God the freedom to be God. It's not easy. It's not easy. At least I've not found it to be easy. But the times I've been able to do that, I've found that it's worth it. It's worth it. Because then, in those moments, I get a taste of what that abundant life is. It's not just that things worked out in some way that's pretty good. But it's that I felt that I was not alone. That God was there. And that God was there to help me where I could not help myself. So we have a God who desires to live in the messiness of our lives. We have a God who's always doing the unusual and, you know, even occasionally the miraculous. We have a God that's willing to take the ordinary things of our life that we think that are common or can't be used. And he's willing to take those ordinary things and do the extraordinary with them so that we might truly experience this type of abundant life. And, you know, each time I allow God to get out of some box I've created God into, this is how God needs to act, this is what God needs to do. Each time I've allowed God the freedom to be God, I've caught a glimpse of God's glory has been revealed, as you mentioned. In my belief, in my thought, the theology of life, I've become a little bit richer, a little bit richer. You know, if I had to say I had a motto to life as I tried to develop my theology of life, it's that all the truth I know is not all the truth. And I have to be careful that I don't think that all the truth I know is all the truth because then I can kind of become like those other religious, religious leaders out there and put God in a little bit of box because I can, I'm continually surprised about how God desires to work in my life and in our world. And that's what makes this journey of putting together theology of life so rich and so good. It's good to be with you tonight. I'll close us in a word of prayer and we're out on time and it's always good. And then I do look forward, we're going to continue this a little bit. We'll do, look at another aspect from the Gospel of John next week and the week that follows. As we kind of build about how do we, what are some some hinge points what are some things that we can do that can help us always create a theology of life that's alive that's new that is allowing God to be God does that sound okay good let's pray together loving God I'm humbled by 
what seems like such a simple miracle of you just turning water into wine and at a wedding feast and of all the things that were going on at that time, who would have thought that just a wedding in a little nothing town of Cana would be what was so important to you? But then again, I'm thankful that the little things in my life you think are just that important. And you're willing to come, do the extraordinary, and give us a glimpse of your glory, and give us the ability with which to lean on you a little bit more trusting as we seek to live this life in a way that also gives this world a glimpse of God's glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.